All right. Let's open to our books. Those of you who have them, we're on page 221. <clears throat> and this is where Yogananda just starts sharing with us about Patanjali, uh, a great sage who wrote the Yoga Sutras. As also we mentioned here, there are six different philosophies in the Indian, in the Hindu, you know, tradition. And each philosophy is kind of its own unique way to the divine. You've got Shankhya, you've got Yoga, you've got uh, Mimisa, you've got Nyaya, you've got Vedanta. Um, so these are just different perspectives on how to get there. Of course, they're all one in a sense, and they kind of lead into one or the other. For example, Yogananda would say, Shankhya is much more about the why. Why is there suffering? Why does the world act or express itself the way it does? It's very philosophical. It's all about how creation began. It's all about, you know, how those different differentiations come, the gunas come in, the different states of consciousness come in. And the main question for the Shankhya is that why is there so much suffering? And from there you get to yoga, which is how do I now overcome? Now that I've understood what the nature of this world is, how do I overcome? So yoga is the practical kind of uh, aspect to this. And of course, Vedanta is the ant of the Vedas. What happens after having used yoga, having united yourself, what comes after, which is the nature of the divine, the nature of the soul, the nature of Satchitananda is most beautifully described in Vedanta and so on and so forth. And so <clears throat> it was Patanjali who gave and defined the process of yoga through a very, very tiny book called the Yoga Sutras. And in the very first uh, verse, it says, now we come to the study of yoga. That's the first verse. Now we come to the study of yoga. And uh, Yogananda, in his commentaries on the Yoga Sutras, spends like pages just explaining this first verse, just explaining the now, the very fact that he says, now we come. He says that means there was something that preceded it. And that's why he was trying to show how Shankhya Yoga normally in traditional sense, you see them as standalone philosophies. But Yogananda said they don't stand alone. They really feed into one, in, one into the other. And so therefore, Patanjali is kind of saying, now we come. After having already created enough of an understanding, now we come. And he also said, now is a moment of the readiness of the soul. Nobody will come to yoga until he says, now I come to yoga, finally, now I want this. Now is the time where my heart seeks nothing else but to explore my own divine realities. But then the very next verse, which is the second verse, he defines yoga. And over here, Yogananda says, yoga chitta vritti nirod. Yoga is the neutralization of the vrittis, which are like the whirlpools of chitta. In our Thursday class on the Gita, if you paid attention over around, you saw we, and we've mentioned this several times, the four aspects of our consciousness being man, buddhi, ahankar, and chitta, mind, intellect, ego, and chitta. And it's important to understand where do we get to chitta, and we've gone through this. Mind is the perceiver, intellect is the analyzer, the processor, which tells us what it is that we are perceiving. The ego comes in, the ahankar, and always relates whatever it is perceiving back to itself. And that's, you know, a certain level of delusion sets in when you start relating, because that means you've now separated yourself from all that you perceive. But then it's the chitta that really binds the ego to maya, because the chitta comes and says, I am either happy by what I see, I am either unhappy by what I see, I either like what I see, either I dislike what I see. It's enough to relate to yourself, but it's when we then cut and carve the world into duality by the likes and dislikes. This makes me happy, this makes me unhappy. And it is then, Yogananda said, that delusion entirely sets in. And how does delusion set in? It sets in by creating what are these vrittis, these whirlpools. And these whirlpools are like uh, in, within our life force, especially inside our Shishumna, where the life force flows most powerfully. In there, around our chakras, will be created a pre-committed flow to, of energy that says, this is what I like. I like ice cream. And now somewhere in your spine, 
a little whirlpool will be created that suggests that you like ice cream. So that every time energy flows close to it, every time the thought comes, that desire will be awakened. Because it's as a whirlpool, what the whirlpool does is it sucks you into it. So these are actual, not physical so to speak, but energetic movements. A chakra itself is a large whirlpool, is a large vritti. And depends on when we say the chakra is open or closed, you know how we use these terms kind of fairly loosely. But it is either the chakra is drawing your energy outward and downward into the world, or the chakra is drawing the energy inward and upward towards the higher spheres. So that's what decides whether a chakra is, you know, supporting your spiritual process or going against it. And so all these vrittis really just kind of bind themselves, thousands, millions, every thought you've had creates a vritti, every little tiny intention you place, some vrittis are really strong. I'm a man, I'm a this, I'm a that, this is who I am, this is what I like. And some vrittis are very tiny and then, you know, you can overcome them. Thoda like ice cream khaya, that vritti is gone until we create it again. And so that whole process is going on over and over again. So Patanjali says, yoga's chitta vritti nirodh. Yoga is the neutralization of those vrittis of chitta that we create every moment with every thought, with every action, with every desire. They are our desires and they are what compel us because here you are not wanting to get upset but because that vritti is stronger than your own will, you get upset by certain situations. Here you are not wanting to react in a certain way but that vritti is too strong, you will react in that certain way. Here you are not really wanting to lie but that vritti is too strong. Here you are lying, even while your mind is saying, Bhai, tu ye kar even while your conscious mind doesn't really want to do it. But the vritti has much more power over you. And so that's the entire science upon which yoga is built. And that's where Patanjali just kind of reduces that truth into yoga, chitta, vritti, nirodh. You know, otherwise it's like yoga, we just create our own meanings. Oh, yoga is the union of soul and Paramatma and my masculine say, yeah. and my feminine. And Actually, very recently, I don't know where I read this, that it's just like, oh my God, I, I really need to meditate on these words. It was by Swamiji himself, towards the end of his life. He wrote, Chitta is the watering down of divine love, unconditional love, to a human feeling. Mm, beautiful. That's what Chitta does. It just brings from this level of super consciousness where pure unconditional love is, where true um, love, divine love is, and waters down, filters that feeling down from being a divine uniting feeling to a dividing, rejecting, separating human feeling. I mean, when I read that line, just very recently, I have never read it before in my life. I mean, I just, boom, saw it there, and I thought, you know, this would be a good thing to meditate on. I mean, like, like chitta waters down that divine love and filters, filters it. So, so we can not really perceive the essence of what's going on in our heart. Anyway, I just wanted to share that. No, it's just beautiful. I, I myself have never read it. Yeah, or it we must have read it and it and never it kind like, of choo. registered yeah. until... We were not ready for that. <laughs> it's too much for us. <laughs> but it's just amazing to have that kind of clarity because then it's not no longer a, hey, how am I supposed to achieve this union? Because the union's not the problem. The problem is everything that st stops union, which are those vrittis, because they keep drawing us. They're the, you know, one image uh, Master would often use was of Gulliver and the little Lilliputs, you know, who tie him down. He says, in and of themselves, they feel that they're these tiny things and the threads are so tiny. But when hundreds and thousands of them start tying you down, then even though you are this great divine self, you are this giant of a being, but you have no power. And so that's what happens with these little vrittis. And lifetime after lifetime after lifetime, this is what we carry. This is the sum totality of our personality, of who we are, of why we act in certain ways, why we react in certain ways, why every one of us is so individual. 
is because our vrittis are so individually both not only created but expressed and also aligned differently around different chakras. The same kind of vritti depending on its vibration will either sink lower down in, the, in your spinal column or in the astral spine or higher up. And the idea is the more we neutralize these vrittis, the energy that's pre-committed and trapped in them gets released for us to then channel upward towards our divine pursuit. So with every vritti that's kind of neutralized, suddenly you have more and more and more energy. And that's why a simple life is such a big part of the spiritual journey. Because the more clutter you have inwardly, outwardly, just the less energy you have to give to that uh, final goal that you've placed before yourself. So that's just the first step of Patanjali establishing what the purpose of yoga is. Yoga, Chitta, Vritti, Nirodh. Now let's continue. <clears throat> the yoga system as outlined by Patanjali is known as the Eightfold Path or the Ashtanga Yoga. Now for most people, if you ever say, yeah, and we practice Ashtanga Yoga, they naturally assume it means Hatha Yoga because that's what's become popularized. You know, these eight aspects of the physical postures that people do. But Patanjali had was not establishing a physical posture regime. You can use Ashtanga Yoga and apply it to absolutely any aspect of your life. Absolutely any. Because the goal of Ashtanga Yoga, the eighth final step of Ashtanga Yoga is Samadhi, which means union, complete union. So if you are seeking success, that means your goal is to unite with success. So you can take Ashtanga Yoga and place it in success. If you're looking to perfect a relationship, you take Ashtanga Yoga and put it into that relationship because the end goal of Ashtanga Yoga is Samadhi, is complete union in that relationship. So you can take any aspect of your life and paste on the Ashtanga Yoga principles and you'll see it works amazingly. We're of course going to talk about it from the perspective of that Samadhi with the ultimate so, he outlines the steps as such. The first steps are the yamas and the niyamas, which require, which are require observance of ten negative and positive moralities, which are avoidance of injury to others, of untruthfulness, of stealing, of incontinence, of gift receiving, of purity of body and mind, of contentment, of self-discipline, of study, and of devotion to God. So these are the five yamas and the niyamas, essentially non-violence, non-lying, non-greed, non-stealing, and non-sensuality being the five yamas, the controls that we have to create. And then the five niyamas are contentment, cleanliness, tapasya, uh, self-study, swadhyay, and Ishwar Pranidhan, devotion to God. So these five aspects of yamas and niyamas are like the Ten Commandments in Christianity, for example. They're how to live outwardly a life that will not strengthen and create more vrittis. So that's step one. Rather than adding every day, day after day, more vrittis, because here you are working on just neutralizing a few, and then we step back into the world, and you know by the time you finish breakfast, you've got 600 more already part of your you know, inner shushumna. So the first aspect is, how do I live a life that ensures that I'm not constantly creating more and more vrittis, and also I start neutralizing individual vrittis that exist, little by little, by drawing energy away from them, by drawing, so non-violence being, not being negative at all, not even having an iota of interest in creating any harm towards somebody. So I wouldn't think negatively about them, I will never speak negatively, I'll never act in a way that it might even possibly harm somebody. So little by little, you start withdrawing energy from multiple such vrittis that have been created over judgment, criticism, negativity, always seeing the worst in people, always fault finding. I mean, we must have thousands such vrittis. So when I set my mind on to non-violence in its highest essence, little by little I start taking away that energy from those vrittis. So that's step one. Trying to work on the individual energies we've already created, trying not to create any more new vrittis. Step, the next steps are asan, which in itself is right posture. Asan just means posture. The entire science of Hatha Yoga was created to help us achieve 
that perfect posture, that perfect asana, which is straight spine, all your uh, spine is in perfect alignment, your neck, your spiritual eye, it also means your ability to hold your body perfectly still and motionless. Because until we don't achieve that, we're never going to experience deeper states of meditation. And the yamas niyamas are also important. Master said, if you don't practice the yamas niyamas, in fact, we read this in the Gita in fact, the other day as well, didn't we? If you don't practice these outward observances, that's what keeps our minds so restless. What is it that you think about in meditation? What somebody said to you, what you did, the things that you have to finish, the food that you need to eat, the greed that exists in you, the attachment that exists in you, the negativity that exists in you, the sensuality that exists in you. So, I mean, those are what our thoughts are occupied by. When we practice the yamas, niyamas, naturally we enter into a state of inner stillness. Yogananda said that one of the greatest enemies hmm. of the yogi is a bent spine. I mean, it's, it's almost the, the enemy of self-realization and not just while we sit in meditation, but throughout the day. How, how is it, how, how do you keep your spine? How do you face your daily life? What, what's your attitude, your spine, your posture throughout the day already emanates an attitude towards how you are going to face whatever karma you have to face throughout the day, how you are going to face challenge, how are you going to face this harmony with a, you know, ready for it or afraid from it or just, you know, wanting to hide or run away from it. So if nothing else, train yourself daily. You know, how, whenever you become aware, you know, while you are at your computer, you know, while you are serving, cooking, working, I mean, talking with somebody else, how is my posture? And become more and more aware that the more I keep my spine straight, the more life force will flow through my body and therefore more creativity, more energy, more awareness in whatever I'm doing, more concentration, because the more energy flows upward through the through your brain, the more your point between the eyebrows gets stimulated, magnetized. And we train ourselves to live more from this point, from the super consciousness. And that doesn't come when we meditate only 10 minutes a day. This comes when not only I meditate 10 minutes, half an hour, one hour, but throughout the day, I keep magnetizing this part of my body. So there, then it won't be any difference whether I'm working, whether I'm with my family, whether I'm meditating, because everything I'm doing is just, you know, bringing that life force up to my brain, to my point between the eyebrows. So if you have not started yet, perhaps now it's a good time to start practicing that asana in your daily life, not just only uh, in your meditation practices. So here Yogananda defines asana as the spinal column must be held straight and the body firm in a comfortable position for meditation. The fourth is pranayam and this is what we were chanting about. Pranayam be thy religion, pranayam be thy salvation, pranayam is God and if you control the little pranayam, you will become the all-pervading pranayam. And this is a very both esoteric reality, but it's also now a very scientific reality. As we talked about many times, this entire universe is established now to be flows and expressions of energy, different frequencies, different vibrations of energy that give the illusion of solidity of matter. So if the entire universe is energy and the energy inside us, that life force, that prana, if I can learn to begin to control the prana inside me, if I can gain mastery over the energy that flows within me, then naturally as a byproduct, I learn how to work with energy in general. And then I can just learn how to work with anything in the universe because it's all just different waves, different expressions, different flows of energy. 
And so therefore, for the yogi, especially the pranayama aspect becomes very important. But again, it's not the breathing, you know, I'm going to do anulom viloms all my life and I'm going to do. It's that I have absolute control of energy, which in the yogic tradition means I can increase my energy at will, I can direct my energy at will, and I can withdraw my energy at will. These are three very important things. And for this, Yogananda created what we practice daily is the energization exercises. The ability first to increase the flow of energy in the body, then to direct it individually to any muscle, any part of the body, and then to withdraw it consciously from any part of the body. When that starts to happen inside us, remember these vrittis that we keep talking about, the only way, now we could sit for lifetimes after lifetimes and say, I have to work on this vritti and I have to work on this vritti and by the time you're fixing one vritti, another vritti is already starting to go off and then it's just like, how do you work with these thousands, millions, perhaps, who knows how many such vrittis? And like a whirlpool in any river, if you've ever kind of experienced that, you know, just when the flow of the river is not very, very strong, these little whirlpools start are created and they are created how something falls into the river like a little plastic bag or a, you know a log and around it some other things start to accumulate and little by little like our thoughts and our intentions which, which start these vrittis the flow of the water begins to circulate around this center of gravity that has been created and it starts circulating and the flow of this river is not powerful enough to sweep this in its wake. So this little energy starts creating here and then there's another energy here and those who go for, you know, river rafting, that's the fun part is like trying to avoid these little whirlpools and you know how you navigate through the river. And that's how our spine is. So by the time energy rises and even gets to the brain, it's weakened so much because so much of it has gone here, 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 gone here. Gone here. It's like, you know, just, just that little bit. So we're going to have to learn, that's what pranayama is, how to increase that flow of energy because the moment the river is in flood, it's just going to wash all those vrittis, all those whirlpools will just get washed away. And that's what even the kundalini experience represents, is that flood of energy. But before the kundalini can even rise, we need to be cleaning this, this muck up. And daily when we sit to meditate and we wash through the spine, a little of those vrittis get completely taken away, into, swept away into that. But if you're just sitting for a few minutes, whereas your dynamic will is just a little bit and you've just somewhat, you know, you'll just get that much out of it. But if you really know how to sit, you've got those techniques, you know what that energy control feels like, you can perceive that energy and you have mastery over it, then that flow just takes it away and then suddenly, you know, a month later you realize, oh, those things that bothered me don't bother me anymore. That person would have otherwise, I would have gotten so upset in his presence, but now I don't feel that way. That one thing that, you know, my favorite cup when it broke, I did not react the way I would because that vritti that existed just doesn't exist anymore. And that's the entire process that we're trying to create. So pranayam becomes the, you can say, crux for the yogi of how he's going to manifest this reality. From pranayama, which is control of the prana and the subtle life currents, comes pratyahar, which is the fifth step. Pratyahar is the ability to withdraw our senses from external objects. So when we sit to meditate, of course, we're still feeling the, you know, whatever, the AC on our skin. We're still listening to all the sounds around us. We can still smell whatever is happening in the room or in our vicinity. And that's also a major part of what keeps our awareness bound to the external world. So next step after learning to control that prana is to learning how to withdraw through that prana all the energy that animates our, our external senses. And that's a big part the majority of people aren't able to actually achieve. You're having a deep moment in meditation but you've not withdrawn all your senses. You're still very much aware of the world around you. And until pranayama isn't firmly established, until you don't really have that kind of control over your prana, that withdrawal of energy becomes, well, not impossible, but certainly a little harder. 
The last steps are forms of yoga proper. Yogananda writes, which is the sixth is dharan, which is concentration, the holding the mind to one thought. Now having increased the flow of energy in your body, having withdrawn the life force away from the physical body, from your senses, internalized your own mind, now you have to take all that energy and direct it single-pointedly to one thought, one object, one intention. Often in meditation that one thing tends to be the breath, to hold the mind firm on that one experience alone. And that concentration is absolutely needed. Because once you have all that life force, we need to learn how to move that life force powerfully upward. So therefore we tend to concentrate here at the point between the eyebrows. Therefore in Hongso, we try to feel the breath right here. So that this center starts to get magnetized and draws our awareness entirely to it. Then from concentration, we come to Dhyan, which is meditation itself. Can you imagine all these steps we've been doing and we've actually not even started meditating. According to Patanjali, now we come to meditation. Because after we've learned to concentrate single-pointedly, what comes, which is meditation, is complete absorption. It's like when I'm in a book and I'm just deeply concentrated in this book and I'm just enjoying, or a movie, or any experience. In that moment, we become completely unaware. We forget, ki, did we have our meals? We forget, even if somebody sometimes is calling us and you're just like glued to the screen, you know how kids are. It's like they can't actually even hear their parents because all their life force has interiorized and is just on that television screen, which isn't a good thing. <laughs> but that's what concentration does. It creates complete absorption. Concentration is I am concentrating on something. Meditation is when the I and the thing become one. And that's the state of absorption we want to achieve in our meditations. From there comes samadhi, which is super conscious perception. So the difference between meditation, which is absorption, and samadhi is this. In meditation, when that absorption happens, it happens between I, the individual, and the thing I am concentrating on. So let's say, for example, I'm focusing on the breath. So at first, I concentrate on the breath. I get completely, single-pointedly focused on the breath. That naturally takes me into the breath where I'm absorbed into the breath, where I feel I am the breath. And then samadhi is universalizing that experience until you don't feel you're just the breath but you're all creation because that breath or that energy pervades the entire universe. And little by little, your absorption is no longer with that object, but becomes universalized until you're absorbed in every atom of creation. Now, as amazing as that sounds, you can see there's a process, a very clear step-by-step -step reality to it. And for all of us who sit here and say, when is Samadhi going to come to me and when am I going to go deep in meditation? If we look at just these very eight simple steps, I think we can honestly say, okay, <laughs> there's still work to be done, but at least I know what I'm supposed to do. At least it's no longer vague and says, well, some people say chanting se hota and some people say is mantra se hota and some people say, because all those things work as long as they all follow this reality. Because if you in fact take a mantra, and get so deeply concentrated by the mantra, so interiorized by the mantra, so absorbed in the mantra, then yes, that mantra will take you to Samadhi. But the process is the same. No matter which religion you follow, no matter what tradition you follow, Christian saints are known to experience the exact same states of bliss, of the rising of the energy inside them. They don't have the words for it. They don't have the philosophical understanding for it. But the experience does not change. And that's important to understand. What Patanjali is describing here isn't a path. He's describing the only path. How you follow the path is entirely up to you. You can follow it through bhakti, you can follow it through jnana, you can follow it through a de deity, you can follow it through focusing on the formless aspect of the divine, you can follow it through your meditation, you can follow it through yoga asanas, you can follow it any way you want, but the process remains the same. This is the eightfold path of yoga, which leads one to the final goal of kevalya, or absoluteness, a term which might not, which might be more comprehensibly put as realization of the truth beyond all intellectual apprehension. 
Which is greater, one may ask, a Swami or a Yogi? Now, of course, the chapter here is Yogananda takes the Swami vows, but he's also a Yogi, he's a Kriya Yogi. If and when final oneness with God is achieved, the distinctions of the various parts disappear. The Bhagavad Gita, however, points out that the methods of yoga are all embracive. Its techniques are not meant only for certain types and temperaments, such as those few who incline towards the monastic life. Yoga requires no formal allegiance. So that's a beautiful thing to think about. Doesn't matter what life you have, doesn't matter whether you can take some sort of outward vow or not, whether you can renounce the world or not, because sometimes in our minds, spirituality has so much to do with the external. Oh, I can't leave these things, so of course I'm not ready for this deep spiritual experiences. No, because yoga has nothing to do with that. Yoga has primarily to do with you and your life force and how much control you exert over your own life force. And of course, when you learn to truly renounce things outwardly, truly, not just setting it aside and saying, I won't look at it for the rest of my life, when you've truly learned that renunciation from internally, that means that that life force inside you no longer is compelled outward to seek those things. That's what renunciation requires. So through renunciation, you can achieve self-control or by experiencing the life the way it is, but being able to withdraw your own life force from the compulsions around you, you seek the exact same self-control. Hmm. Yoga requires no formal allegiance because the yogic science satisfies a universal need. It has a natural universal applicability. A true yogi may remain dutifully in the world. There he is like butter on water and not like the easily diluted milk of the unchurned and undisciplined humanity. To fulfill one's earthly responsibilities is indeed the higher path, provided the yogi, maintaining a mental uninvolvement with egotistical desires, plays his part as a willing instrument of God. Now these words sum up the entire Bhagavad Gita. Do you have something no, to say? Why ahead. don't you say first? No, I've been no, talking for a long time. <laughs> Narayani, Narayani, Narayani. No, I was simply thinking about that one of the main teachings in the Bhagavad Gita is mm. Nishkam, karma, and this is really the essence of any spiritual path or anything we do really in life. To start perceiving and feeling that God is the doer. In everything we, we perform, in every activity, in every relationship, in any project that we feel inspired to manifest, God is the doer and remaining in that consciousness of not being attached to any result is what Krishna advises, suggests and teaches how to do that. To remain untouched by the results of our actions and how do we do that? By channeling that consciousness of the divine and perceiving yourself as a channel. Recently we had a class with Naya Swami Jaya and I really liked the way he proposed it. He said at the beginning it's very difficult for the yogi for the yogi to feel that he God is doing it through him. But we can go a step backwards and perhaps we cannot feel God is doing through us, but we can invite God doing it with us as our partner and start every activity by saying, God, we will do this together and let's go to this place or let's make this phone call or let's do this. What do you think we should do together today? And let's go to meditate and what I'm going to wear today. So you first start inviting that invisible friend and make him part of everything you do until bit by bit both of you both energies become the same consciousness and then you will be able to live Krishna's teachings at its highest by really you knowing that God is flowing through you therefore whatever result 
doesn't really matter. So if us, as true yogis, whether we are parents or you know, boss in a big company or whether we are simple devotees or whether we are whoever we think we are and the role that we have to perform in life according to our own dharma, that's secondary. The main thing is how are you performing your God-given responsibilities? And if you are able to work, able to work at that level where I'm performing everything that I am being asked, 100%, I'm going to give my best, I'm going to invest my energy, my time to make sure that whatever I'm doing, I'm doing my very, very best. Yet, I'm going to detach myself from it by inviting God in the picture. And therefore, whether the result ends in a you know, good result or bad result, it doesn't really matter because God has been in the picture. And you know, I can also blame him because <laughs> I wasn't doing it myself alone. He was there too. So if he allowed that to happen, you, know, you share the blame with him. And somehow the whole process becomes lighter. You take yourself you know, more impersonally, less seriously. And, and you will start realizing that life is indeed um, a wonderful way and battlefield to become the true yogi that you want to become. So when Yogananda says here, a mental uninvolvement with egoistical desires plays his part, you play your part as a willing instrument of God. So, yes. I like also here an important aspect is to fulfill one's earthly responsibilities is indeed the higher path. Of course, there's this huge caveat that says provided the yogi. But let's just set that aside for a moment and just take this. To fulfill our earthly desires is indeed the higher path. Again, there's this romantic idea behind renunciation. I mean, all of us, especially those of us who've kind of very firmly established on the spiritual path, how many of us would say, oh, I wish I could just leave it all behind and, you know, just go somewhere and be in the mountains. And, and while that is a very ideal fantasy, the majority of us actually can't really go away and hold our minds firmly on God. It's just the truth. Take one day of your life where you have no distractions, which is what we try to do often is to do a seclusion and see the amount of energy it takes to keep your mind on God. Lock yourself in a room, have ample food so you don't have to think about anything, have everything you need around you and no other distractions, and just see how much energy it takes to put your mind entirely on God. It's very hard. So whatever your romantic inclinations may be about a renunciate life, they're quite unfounded. True renunciates, and that is why um, Lahiri Mahashaya almost never gave anybody a monastic vow because he realized that it's not going to help them unless they have gone lifetimes after lifetimes and have perfected their relationship to God to such a degree that they can in fact go out and be without distractions and hold that attention, hold that dharan, hold that absorption for 20, 24 hours a day. Otherwise, what are you doing out there? What rejection have you created of the world sitting somewhere begging for your food, not meditating, not loving God, kind of just whiling your time away and assuming that's what spiritual life is. Oftentimes, even in ashrams, you see people just whiling their time away. Yeah, there's meditation and then after that, I don't know what I'm going to do. Because they just don't know how to keep that dynamic relationship. It's so much better to actually have some place to give your energy to. It's so much better to have an actual responsibility, some place to truly direct your life was because when you have to work, you have to learn so many things. You have to learn willpower. You have to learn overcoming your likes and dislikes. You have to learn how to cooperate with people. You have, to, yamas and yamas you have to practice all the yamas and yamas. That's the battlefield where victory can be achieved. And then you test the victory by saying, what if I stepped away from the world? Could I hold my relationship with God for 24 hours? 
And when you realize that's not happening, better to come back and perfect that relationship again. Again and again, again and again, until you can do that. Because only if you're drunk with God, it doesn't matter where you are. But if you reject the world in a false way, seeking some, you know, fantastical process of what God is, you're rejecting a huge part of what God really is. He's as much present in this harmonium right now, right here, as he's present in you and I. So that's so much more a dynamic relationship to create. Let me relate to God in this harmonium. Let me relate to God in this book. Let me relate to God in my wife, in my friend, in my husband, in my children, in my... If I cannot do that, where, where will I relate to him? In the sky? Where will I relate to him? In the mountains? So renunciation, if you are, you know, if you have an, an inclination towards it, practice it here first. And this is what this uh, paragraph represents. It is indeed the higher path. For the majority of us, it is the higher path. Responsibility is higher than doing nothing. Unless that nothing includes complete absorption in God. If you can't do complete absorption, do this. And that's a very humbling and a very practical and a very relaxing reality because then it breaks your any misconception you've created. If one day I could do that. The truth is you can't do that. And if you think you can do that, try it. Say for a week, you'll let everything go out, do a seclusion and see how much of that week. For a day even. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, try it for two hours even. Try it in your own meditation where there are no distractions and you close your eyes. Even in our own meditations, we're not with God. We're with our dinner that's going to follow and we are with the fight that we had with some colleague and we are with the perfectly crafted argument you will give to your boss the next time you see him. That's where we are even in our own meditations. So again, just relaxation, humility, and then realizing I've been placed here, <laughs> I have these things around me, let me find him here first. And this is where then Yustas Narayani said that step comes. Let me first involve him, make him a partner, partner in crime, in Maya. And then little by little you'll start to realize, well, I've never been doing anything anyway, it's just been him. And that's when perhaps we can say, well, let me see, now see, can I still feel him when I separate from all these things? There are a number of great souls living in American or European or other non-Hindu bodies today. Though they may have never heard the words yogi and swami are yet true exemplars of those terms. Through their disinterested service to mankind or through their mastery over passions and thoughts or through their single-hearted love of God or through their great powers of concentration they are, in a sense, yogis. They have set themselves the goal of yoga, which is self-control, which is that pranayam. These men could rise to even greater heights if they were taught the definitive science of yoga, which makes possible a more conscious direction of one's mind and life. When Yogananda went to America, he started to realize that the majority of the people he attracted were very well-off people who had achieved a lot in their lives. Not people of wealth alone, although wealth tends to be one of the expressions, but people who were self-made. And so the, high, the disciples of Yogananda towards his end of his life, the three most highly advanced disciples whom he considered having already achieved God-realization were all extremely wealthy, extremely self-made, coming from nothing, creating an entire empire. And they all were businessmen and a woman. And he would say that the very principles and the very qualities you need to succeed in life and in business and to create something in this world is exactly what you need to find God. Namely, the same things. Concentration, high energy, lot of willpower. I mean, true you know, pioneers in any industry, they're real renunciates. You will not see them, you, you know, our image of wealthy people is they're on a yacht somewhere, you know, enjoying themselves. But those people who've set themselves the goal of excellence, they're not on a yacht somewhere drinking champagne. They're at work 20 hours a day. They don't care about how they look, they don't care about what they eat, they don't care about what they wear. 
they go nowhere, they do nothing else, but they're focused single-pointedly. And so all, all Yogananda is saying here is, once you've created concentration as a principle, all you have to do is shift that concentration towards God-realization, or shift that concentration towards excellence in the world. And it works either way. And Once they, you've, sorry. No, no. And they don't even talk too much. They don't talk too much. <laughs> Those people do not talk too much. I mean, often they're considered rude. But the majority of the people, if you hear about Elon Musk and you hear about Steve Jobs, most people consider them rude because they don't live in the world that people live in. They don't have time for niceties and let's sit down, let's have our cup of chai. They're just in that flow. They are absorbed. That's meditation, absorption. And their goal, perhaps, in that moment is outward excellence. But if that same goal were to just be shifted towards God, that same power, that same concentration, that same excellence would be achieved immediately. So you see how the spiritual journey and the material journey really are completely enmeshed. Where in your meditation, you perfect concentration, you perfect stillness, you perfect self-control, you perfect willpower and then you go out and you manifest it and out there through circumstance through karma through the people around you you perfect the same things again and then you bring them into your meditation the next day and then you develop them in your meditation then you throw them back out and that's what's really going on here is the perfection of these qualities that eventually lead us to complete absorption and samadhi the same willpower, the same ability. These people, they get absorbed. They just withdraw their senses. Einstein was said to be working on a problem for three, four days at a time without having a meal, without going to the bathroom, without moving. Now, if that's not a yogi, who is? I mean, how long have we, you sit on a project before you need your water break and your snack break and your bathroom break and your talk break and your WhatsApp checking break? What, five minutes? Seven minutes? I mean, how long does it take before you get distracted? So that's the energy it takes to find God. The same energy it takes to break the mysteries of this world, which is what these great people have done. So they're all yogis. Yogananda said, in fact, most of these people were yogis and renunciates in their previous lives. In this life, they have to balance out in involvement in the world, but they bring with them those same qualities, those same powers that they developed in that life. And so we have to see all of life from that perspective, not from the outward, but look at what are the qualities these people possess. And then you will know them to be whether one way or the other. And you can see people who have a lot of money, but don't possess these qualities, especially those who inherit their money. Mm -hmm. But you'll see those who've created that wealth all possess in some fashion or the other. I'm not saying they're wonderful people or they're perfect. I'm just saying they contain certain yogic qualities that they've developed over lifetimes. Now they have directed it perhaps towards greed, which is okay. That's another lesson they need to learn. <laughs> It'll balance out in its own way, but at least they've developed it. And that's what we need to learn to develop as well. It's already, it's already time. <laughs> wow, we never get to finish. We're going to assume this chapter is finished. We're going to start from the next chapter when we do. For those of you who want to finish it, just to read the next lines. There's, in fact, not that much more than what we've yeah, already maybe spoken. Maybe we can read the last paragraph now. The see. last paragraph? No. All right, last paragraph. The Western day is indeed nearing when the inner science of self-control will be found as necessary as the outer conquest of nature. So that's already, of course, happening now. This new atomic age will see men's minds sobered and broadened by the now scientifically undisputable truth that matter is in reality a concentrate of energy. Finer forces of the human mind can add, I'm sorry, can and must liberate energies greater than those within stones and metals lest the material atomic giant, newly unleashed, turn on the world in mindless destruction. So before we destroy ourselves <laughs> through our nuclear weapons, if we can awaken the finer forces and powers of our own minds, of our own life force, of our own prana, gain self-control over that, then this world is headed for a utopian experience. But if we're unable to do that, 
and we, you know, and we try again <laughs> when the time yeah. gives itself. In fact, Yogananda gave an amazing formula. He said, the greater the will, yeah. the greater the flow of energy. And the greater the flow of energy, the greater the magnetism for anything in life. So as Shurja was saying that Yogananda created this set of exercises who awaken that energy within the body and therefore magnetizing, generating that willpower that is necessary for any success and therefore the magnetism to attract that very success that you are looking for. So I think this is almost the, the mantra of this Dwapara Yuga, you know, something that we should think about, meditate about, and in every activity that we are performing, see if you have applied that principle. I have, have I worked with greater energy, greater willpower, what I have magnetized through this activity. I have magnetized within myself a spiritual quality that I needed to develop. I have magnetized certain people that I need in my life for certain things. I have attracted the right team. I have attracted the right partner. If not, perhaps you need to ask yourself, I have put in, ha, am I putting enough energy and willpower in anything that I'm doing? So measure your success by the energy that you put out. And if you keep reminding yourself, I have put enough energy here, I have invested enough concentration, I have given my best. And if you have done that, know that you are already magnetizing, in, if not in that, in that very moment, very soon the people that you need, the finance, financial support that you will need, the team, the relationship, the place that you are looking for, the home that you are hoping to rent somewhere. So, so concentrate on the energy that you are putting because that energy, that willpower is like an investment on your spiritual bank account. So shift your point of reference, not from just the results that I need to achieve, but the kind of energy that I need to invest in everything I do. All right. Thank you so much, everyone. God bless you. Jai Guru. Go and put that energy out and let us know how it goes. Okay.